Hello and welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 20, Kima and C-City. We are looking for more people to interview, so if you're a DM or you know a DM that might be interested in coming on the show, you can check out more about how to apply at www.gocorral.com STS. And without any further ado, let's get into the show. Okay, today I'm here with Kima to talk about his world. It's a cyberpunk setting. Um, but first, let's learn a little bit more about you. Uh, Kima, you want to tell us about uh, yourself and who you are outside of D&D? Uh, sure. So uh, I actually grew up in New York, and I went to college for archaeology and oh, cool. forensic science. So I actually have a background in all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, I worked as an EMT for a bit. And uh, during college, I absolutely fell in love with tabletop role-playing games. Uh, I just couldn't get enough of them. Played every Friday night for my whole four years. Cool. But yeah, that's most of who I am. Now I live out in Wyoming, and I work for the uh, State Game and Fist Department. Okay, yeah, a lot of jobs doing that. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Yeah, what, what are you doing specifically? I know there's like all sorts of things that are in that department. Uh, I switch between two jobs. I work at a bird farm, raising and releasing pheasants. Uh, and I work in boat inspection and decontamination. For okay, gotcha, like, yeah, for barnacles and that kind of thing? Yep. Yeah, cool. Specifically, uh, quagga and zebra mussels are our big two. Right. Have you ever read Danny, Champion of the World by Roald Dahl? Uh, I, I probably did a very long time ago. Okay. It's it's a book I remember being about like about hunting pheasants where Danny's like this poor kid and he comes up with like a plan to steal all of the pheasants from like some rich jerk that lives next to him. Uh that definitely sounds like a all right, uh, for someone who's worked with pheasants for way too long, I would do anything in my power to get as far from them as possible. <laughs> they're they're very pretty. And I love animals, but they are super dumb, and they just hurt you just by being nearby. Yeah. If I remember right, how he does it is he, like, puts a bunch of sleeping pills inside of raisins, and the peasants eat them. Oh. Oh, yeah, they live in a gypsy caravan. Yeah, that might be. Cool. Remembering all of it. Uh, Well, yeah, if you've had your fill of pheasants, then maybe it's not the right book for you. <laughs> No, I definitely have. I almost got my nose broken by one. They are. They're bigger than they seem. Yeah, yeah. Um, where I live, we have a lot of, like, wild turkeys, so I'm oh, used yeah. to the annoying large birds that just hang around. Uh, I, I spent some of the year in the mountain town of Story, and uh, there are so many animals on the road in the summer, because you can't hunt, like, right around the town. Uh, driving the seven-minute stretch from, like, the start of the town to where I live, uh, I would routinely see at least 30 or 40 deer, like, in patches of 10 all up and down the road, maybe, like, maybe even as close as 50 turkeys. Because you will see, like, genuine herds of, like, 15 to 20 just hanging out in the road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, we see that for the, the turkeys, but, yeah, that many deer is impressive. It's mostly doe, just because they know that they can come up to the town and eat all our trash and no one can shoot them. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, that's pretty cool. I've uh, I've never been in a place that had that many deer, um, even really rural places around here. Oh, it's definitely got its downsides. Yes, yes, I can imagine having a 
<laughs> that many deer could definitely be an issue for driving. Uh, she said you got into D and D in college. What got you into like DMing? Uh, so I started like learning about D and D in high school, but uh, I just uh-huh. wasn't able to get a group together. And when okay. I got to college, I started playing in a club called the Storytellers Guild, and it was just oh, like cool. a general nerd club. Every day was a different thing. Like one day was mm-hmm. card games, one day was LARPing. Uh, they even had yep. like proper LARPing. Like they had one day where people just go outside and fight with swords. It was awesome. Yep, it's called the Dragon Club at my college. <clears throat> ah, they called theirs Lockwind. <laughs> but uh, I met, I, I played DM D&D for the first time, and I met an awesome DM, and I absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, and I actually started DMing because my club ran into this issue where we would just not have enough DMs. So either people would be running, so many people would break off and just run like a game for the whole semester, but that would mean that people who can't make it every week or people who just didn't know about the club, they're just shut out from that group forever. Mm-hmm. So we kept having yeah. a bunch of stragglers, and it would mean that one or two DMs would have to have like 10-person groups because there just simply wasn't enough DMs to get everyone in the game. It was kind of born out of that, and eventually I became a head in that, um, in that club, so I took it upon myself to make sure everyone had a game to play. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's that's really nice of you to do that kind of thing. And yeah, I've also felt that's pretty typical of of D and D groups where you have a large group of people, and then you know people will split off a bit once they find a group that they're happy with, and they don't feel like they need to go to the big group as much anymore. And I get it because when you have that consistent group and you can play a story for a long time, you have just such cool moments and strong emotional bonds. It is kind of hard to do that when you have a shifting group of characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so are you still DMing for the, the shifting group right now, or you have your own like consistent group? Uh, not anymore. I did so. I did that for like four years through college, or more or less three years. I spent my first year kind of playing mostly. Okay, yeah, of course it. you're not there anymore. Yeah, I did a decent mix of, of playing and running for another year, and then I mostly started running when I was ahead. But um, now I, I happen to run one game of Pathfinder. Uh, oh, cool. I just happened to switch off D&D. It had a little bit to do with the whole OGL stuff, but it was honestly mostly about uh, balance issues. I just felt like whenever I would run games mm-hmm. of D&D, my players would be way too strong, and the power differentials would be ridiculous. So I would mm-hmm. have you know, a Circle of the Moon Druid, who I can't even actually damage his real health bar, and then I would have like three sorcerers who have no health left and who are about to die. It's like, how do you balance that encounter? Because realistically, the enemies are just going to ignore the thing that they know that they can't kill. Yeah, it's it's difficult. Um, yeah, uh, I I found like in third edition there was this idea of tiers for the classes, and you kind of dealt with that problem by having everyone within like one or two tiers of each other. But I'm not sure that like level of distinction ever developed for fifth edition, as far as I can tell. I mean, it's definitely like a meta textual thing. Like I think everyone knows that, you know, fighters and barbarians are some of the strongest classes, and that ranger kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. They don't really have like a mechanical level to that, but Pathfinder does a little bit more. And I just like how the balance works a bit more. The whole feat system, like level up, feel more impactful. Uh, characters yeah, you're always making choices uh, when you level up. 
Yeah, and, I, and I'm not just seeing the same thing. Like, of course, there's some big stuff like Battle Medicine that you always see, but I'm not seeing, like, uh, Eldritch Blast every single turn over and over again. Like, that was something I hated in D&D, how players would just have one thing that was like, you know, there's no reason not to use it because it's just your best thing. Right, right. I feel like Pathfinder can still have that, but the, the fights are a bit more dynamic just due to the monsters is something that I've I've experienced. Yeah, that exactly. I love that. I love how the monsters have like they have like builds. Like they want you to follow a path. Like I was uh my players were fighting Groith yesterday and they have this kind of like battle path where they try to poison you with a bite that does like no damage but gives you fear. Mm-hmm. And then they start doing shock mind attacks on you which don't do a ton of damage and don't hit super well. But if you're frightened from the poison, it hits much better. And I like how they kind of have that like plan built into their their mechanics. Yeah, exactly. And it's like that for like basically every monster. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like there are some 5th edition monsters that are like that, but most of them are... It hits and it gets advantage by doing this, and it hits for this much, and it has this much for defense, and that's kind of it. Yeah, that, and they're mostly, I see, or I find that a lot of the high-level creatures have cool stuff, especially named enemies in D&D, but there's just not enough. Like, most campaigns, I feel like, don't get too far past level 10. Yeah, and I think one of the things that D&D 5th Edition did to make the high-level monsters interesting is mostly it gives them spells, um, which just don't really feel that unique to me in making that monster feel like its own it's just like oh now the monster is also a wizard yeah pretty much and that makes sense when they're actually wizards but yeah you would think that like some kind of eldritch demon would have a spell that players can't cast right yeah or you know you could modify it like there was something in third edition like abyssal fire where it bypassed fire resistance Um, oh i like that I, I'm always a big uh, advocate for, like, interesting monster design. Even if it's something yeah. super mediocre or minor. Yeah, it's something I really like about 4th edition was having really good monster design, and I'm glad that Pathfinder copied that. I really like the 3X in Economy, too. I feel like it lends itself really well to... Uh, well, 3X in Economy, and honestly, opportunity attacks not being, like, a common thing for enemies... I feel like that changes the game so much in such a good way. Yeah. Like, my players are no longer terrified to move in and out of combat range. They're no longer just wasting every turn doing the same thing because they have options. Like, they're still going to attack, but now they can, you know, try opening a door or try interacting with, like, a spell or, like, a trap. Yeah, yeah, just like you have the options in character design, the three-action economy also gives you options in the actual playing of the game because yeah you can't attack three times but you're you're gonna miss that third attack so you might want to do something else yeah and it gives you know flavor opportunities people can it doesn't feel quite as bad wasting a single action if you have three just to you know like spit at an enemy or something right right um so in your survey you said you'd played a lot of games um have you actually dm for all these or just like played for a lot of them i've dm for a lot of them uh, I actually have like my collection here of a lot of the stuff that I've played. Uh-huh. Uh, definitely the bigger ones I've played. I've played a lot of 50. I've played a lot of Deadlands Classic. I ran that uh-huh. too. That game is way too hard to run. 
Oh, okay. I've heard good things about it, but I've never actually played it or looked at the rules. It's super fun, and it's got, like, the coolest world with just a ton of really good fiction writing all around it. But yeah, the, the combat system's rough. You have to roll, like, four times just to see, like, what a shot does. Like, you have to Ooh, roll okay. to see if it hits, then you have to roll to see where it hits. Then you have to roll the damage, and then if it's, like, a certain amount, you have to roll, like, crit damage. Okay, I see. Uh, I played Eclipse Phase 1 and 2. Uh, both very cool. Okay. Are those a sci-fi one? I'm not. I don't know the name of those. Yeah. So Eclipse One, Eclipse Phase One was kind of just like normal sci-fi, kind of like expanse universe almost. And Eclipse uh-huh. Phase Two is like far post humanity, to the point where there's okay. like questions of ethics, where like if somebody whose body, somebody whose body is gone because they were on Earth when it was destroyed, who got backed up into like a satellite. If we put their body into the brain of an animal, and then we put that brain of an animal into a robot, what are they? <laughs> Oof. And then it's like, what happens if we copy that person and then make a brand new one with the same memories and all the same personality? Is that a new person? Yeah, yeah, the, the ship of the- Theseus philosophy problem. But... Pretty much, yeah. It's really cool, though, because it's got details where, like, there's laws. That's called forking, by the way, when you, like, copy yourself. They have, like, okay. laws about how long you're able to make, like, cellular or real copies of yourself to, like, help you with stuff. It's just a very cool world with a lot of uh, very good world building. <laughs> it's interesting. It sounds like the same laws about copyright for freedom of use. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There's, like, an entire planet of megacorps, so... Okay. Uh, but yeah, that was a big one. Goblin Quest is a very small game, but it's very fun. Just one of those little D6 systems. Yeah, I think I have played that one once a long time ago. Uh, of course, I don't remember played, much about it. I played Pathfinder, a little bit of Savage Worlds, uh, Ryutama, uh-huh. if you've ever heard of that. I I have heard of that one, yeah. That's a very Not much about it. system. It, it's just like a little adventure system. It's got really low magic and really low combat. It's kind of more about like, I don't know if you watched anime, but it's kind of like Kino's Journey as a as a role playing game. It's kind of more about like traveling, meeting people, and like building a story together. Okay, gotcha. But the DM actually has a physical character, which is cool. They have a sheet and they level up with the party. Oh, that is that is pretty unique. It, that's not present in most other settings. Yeah. Systems. Uh, Sorry. So I've played the Expanse RPG, uh, a couple of the end of the world RPGs, uh, and finally, the one that I based my uh, cyberpunk system on is called Soulbound. Yes, I saw that, and um, so I was trying to read up more about it, and I actually found out there are two different systems called Soulbound. Yeah, I think that the... I don't know if it's called Soulbound. I know that the person who made Soulbound, it was like uh, an individual creator, and it was kickstarted and everything. I know mm. that they were looking to make a second game. I don't know what they ended up calling it, though. Okay, uh, yeah, so the two different Soulbound games, one of them is the, the Kickstarter one you're talking about. The other one is actually a Warhammer-based one. Oh, Age of Sigma, I see that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the other one that the kickstarter person is creating is called between clouds that's right that's the one about airships yeah that's gonna be pretty interesting i really like the soulbound system uh hopefully you found the right one yes i did i did i I assumed you meant the indie one and not the warhammer one because you would have mentioned more 
Warhammer stuff. I'd love me some Warhammer, but I admittedly haven't gotten to play Rapid Glory or any of the Rogue Trader stuff yet. Mm, yeah. I have all of it, I just haven't had the time. Well, they're making, um, you know the Kingmaker video games? Yeah. Yeah, the, the next one they're making is Rogue Trader. Holy shit, that's going to be awesome. I've really wanted yeah. to play Rogue Trader for so long, and I just haven't had time to dig into the rules. Yeah, well, you all have a nice little <laughs> pocket nice for it when it comes out, yeah. Uh, uh, all right, yeah, so your world is done using Soulbound, um, and the, the description you gave sounded a lot like the Shadowrun setting to me, um, and I my reading about Soulbound, it sounds a lot like the Shadowrun system, although hopefully not as excruciating from what I've heard about Shadowrun. No, it's much. It, it's a pretty compact system. Character creation could be a bit weird, but generally I like the combat because you pretty much have one action and there's six actions to take, and they're mm -hmm. pretty much like a combination of attacking, defending, and moving. So like one is moving and attacking, one is moving and defending, one's like full defending. Okay. Still, so was a really quick combat system, and it used an octagonal board, like a hex board. Which I just oh. like way more for combat because I feel like it's it fits better than just having the awkward cubes of people around you. How do you have a uh, like? Do you have squares in between the octagons to make that work? Uh, usually the like uh, no, it's like I don't think they're octagons. What's the hexagon? I guess is the correct word. Okay, hexagon. It. Yes, all right, yeah, that makes more sense. I did not do great in geometry. It's been quite a while. That's all right. You don't really need it anymore. Uh, okay, yeah, hexagons. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, hex map is much better for like outside movement, especially. Yeah, because the system doesn't have a lot of like magic AOE kind of stuff. It doesn't. It's not really an issue having to like measure stuff in hexagons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you just yeah move that many hexagons. Uh, but also, the system itself lends itself really well to just big creatures. Uh, I So I've modified the setting, basically. Soulbound takes place in, like, I don't remember the name of the, the plane, but it's kind of just like a fantasy world that's dark industrial. Like, some places are villages, some places have technology. Uh, but for my world, it was full cyberpunk city. Uh, they were in, like, a post... Uh, a post-war world, um, it was pretty much like nuclear apocalypse except like hydrogen bombs. Uh, and it didn't destroy all of the world, but it did push everyone into like major cities. Okay, I would have thought that a, a nuclear war would usually do the opposite. Yeah, I, well, I, I thought that it would be interesting if instead of trying to destroy as many people as possible, uh, they focused more on landscape. Okay, so trying to destroy, like, a country's agriculture? Yeah, because I figured, like, it? if you nuke a city, you're like, yeah, you're going to disrupt a lot of stuff. But if you drop, like, three nukes in a line just down, like, the middle of the U.S., you could functionally cut the entire country and have, with just a radioactive exclusion th zone, and you'll destroy agriculture and trade. Mm -hmm. You could still fly over that, but even that's dangerous before the radiation settles. Right, right, okay. So there's some sort of nuclear apocalypse that drove people into cities. Basically, um, yeah, just like a world event, like lots of wars and government, and uh, it pretty much ended up with there being like last bastions of civilization. Like there was a big war a long time ago, and there's only a couple major cities across the world that are left. 
Okay, so outside of the cities, is it like, you know, fallout wasteland with like monsters and stuff? What's keeping people in besides radiation? Uh, it's very much like a wasteland three. Like there's definitely areas that are completely like desert waste, but a lot of it is just like irradiated wilderness or just like, uh, I also had the idea that uh, the atmosphere would have been affected to such a degree that temperature would have just become extreme. So, like, when it gets hot out, it gets really hot out, and when it gets cold out, it gets really cold out. Yeah, I think plants kind of modulate temperature that way, so that makes sense if the, a lot of those are gone. Yeah. So, like, you know, hardy trees and things that live up on the mountains, they could find a way to survive. But for the most part, like, a lot of greenery is gone. Okay. Gotcha. And in the cities, they moderate that because they just have the technology to be able to pump in heat or, you know, cool the streets as needed. Okay. Uh, so, next question, obviously, where are people getting their food from if all of the agriculture has been destroyed? <laughs> uh, for that, there's like a, a commercial district in the middle of the city that's like a, or not commercial, rather industrial. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like a band that surrounds, uh, the city's kind of circular in nature. nature. Okay. It's kind of rest near the coast, and at the center is like the promenade, which is where, you know, city government is, and all the corporations have their headquarters. Uh, and right around the outside of that is the industrial district, which is like now it's mostly tech. Uh, on the surface, it's mostly like hydroponics and you know like clean work because they mm -hmm. want it to look pretty to be a nice view for the people in the in the high city or not the high city. Uh -huh. It's technically the promenade. Uh, and then underneath that, in the underground, uh, because the city expanded very vertically in both directions, uh, that's where they have all the dirty business. So that's where they have, you know, production and, and burning fuels and stuff like that, everything that creates dirt and pollution. And then they just pump that shit out through the city. So it never comes up and interacts with the upper city at all. Okay, so they're doing like, uh, what's it, like cellular agriculture, that kind of thing, to produce food yeah. now instead of traditional agriculture? Yeah, and I even they even do like meat growing, like they have meat labs that grow. Uh, I would imagine that there's not much real animals left. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. I actually work in that industry like professionally. So that's oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um. Cool. Yeah, that that seems like that's I suppose possible, especially if you have a little bit of magic backing it up. Yeah, so that's the big back to the whole city is that there's a, uh, basically these cities uh, were able to stay because corporations specifically had such a strong hold on them. So every different city had a different corporation that was kind of like there mostly. That's part of the reason they weren't destroyed is because if they were, then the corporations would have stopped helping whoever destroyed them. Uh, and the specific corporation in this city is called Datafield Technologies. Okay. And what they have created is kind of like, imagine physical Wi-Fi. Uh, the whole idea is that the whole city is kind of basked in this field called the data field. Okay. Uh, and it's emitted from these resonators and these like uh, relay stations. And it, it pretty much allows people who have the technological requirements to perform like pseudo magic. So that's how right. you modified like the system's existing magic to work for players. So instead of shooting a firebolt, uh, they could do like a, a trick that would usually be used to light a cigarette, 
and then kind of overload it to fire it off at somebody. Okay, so it's allowing some sort of like power transfer in addition to information? It's pretty much like technology magic. Okay. But yeah, it, it transfers... Right. Uh, information is like the primary use, but uh, people have been developing like modification... Uh, or I called them cursors because in the system of Soulbound, uh, the big... The big thing is that your character starts with a randomly generated weapon. Okay. And part of that is like the weapon will, what the weapon is will be random. So it'll be random if you have a single weapon, two weapons that are combined, or two weapons that are paired. And then you'll roll oh. what kind of weapons they are. So okay. You can have like a shotgun paired with like a, a glaive or like a, a sniper rifle that's built in with a crossbow. This is sounding a lot like Final Fantasy with these weird weapons. It is. It's got some... You can have a pillar. One of the weapons is a full pillar. Okay. Which I rolled as, like, a part of, a like, a sewage pipe. Cool. <laughs> They'd get, like, a... I think they called them sigils, which was, uh -huh. like, a magic effect that was attached to the weapon. Okay. Uh, so some were pretty weak. <laughs> some would do stuff, like, let you see, like, a glimpse into the future. Uh, and then as you leveled up and got stronger, it would get more powerful. Okay. Uh, and some of them were just wild. Some of them would let you light people on fire or, like, uh, curse people. Okay. Yeah, those both sound pretty useful. Uh, so all that magic stuff was ruled in as, like, data field stuff. I, I, you know, if you were hexing somebody, I reworded that as, like, hacking their system. Uh, okay. But basically, the city is dealing with these people who we called cursors. Uh, they were starting to pop up more and more, and they're people who can manipulate the data field like to a greater degree. Okay, and this works within Soulbound because it's also like partially an industrial setting, so like you're not really yeah. So it already has just... guns and stuff, right? Okay. Uh, and uh, one we did have to do a little bit of switching instead of classes. Uh, the game has uh, guilds. So it has nine uh -huh. guilds that you can join that are based on, like, it's pretty much like strength, dexterity, and magic. Uh, okay. and we, I changed what all of those were to uh, mega companies in the city. Oh, okay. So you have, like... Yeah, the... instead of being a guardian, you would uh, either have technology or, like, work for CyberEye Defense Corporation. Okay. So I guess that's kind of the same thing. Like, a guild is more of a union than a mega corporation, but... And of course, they didn't have to be like associated with them. They could just steal tech from that company if they wanted to. Oh yes, of course, theft. <laughs> but yeah, I I did stuff like that. Uh, there's also like the the corporate guilds, uh, which were just force reflex and technology, which are you know, it was just like because there's overarching classes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um. Man, I had so many different questions about the setting. Uh, I guess first of all, uh, what's the what's the city's name? Uh, it's called City or Capital City C. Uh, so some people would call okay. it C City or C City, spelled both ways. Okay. Because uh, it is the city associated with the letter C, and it's also next to the ocean. Okay. Um, gotcha. All right, so it's a it's a port city. Um, is there a lot of trade between the different cities at this point, or are they mostly just isolated? 
uh, there is corporate trade, but it's kind of a bigger deal. Uh, so I didn't do a lot of stuff for the outer world because I didn't particularly need to. But what I know of it right. is that there's not a lot of other cities. There's maybe six or seven other like major cities left. Mm -hmm. And there's a ton of small settlements, but the corporations don't care about them. Right. Uh, so trade shipments were like a big deal. Corporations would trade like locally, like up and down the waterway to like nearby villages or other small like projects they have. To try to you know reclaim some of the land, but uh, for the most part, there would only be like maybe a shipment a month from a different city or going out to a different city. So it would be kind of gotcha. a big deal, and that would also be like an influx of crime. You know, it gives an opportunity for people to disrupt the uh, the transport of all the goods, and it also makes those goods wildly scarce in the city. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it would be very hard to have individual trade because just how would you? physically do it yeah and fuel is kind of you know in shortage because the world infrastructure has been destroyed <laughs> ah yes um so the cities themselves are powered by i'm guessing nuclear fuel or is there something else going on there um as far as my players knew it was nuclear fuel in oh, boy. this city uh there was something a little bit more going on essentially after the cities kind of became isolated and it was clear that like the world was going to be changing uh, Datafield took control of the city and they kind of supplanted themselves as like a corpo fascist leadership kind of thing. Like they're in charge. They still let city politics happen. They still let people run for office and, you know, debate and council, but they kind of have the overseeing hand. Uh -huh. And they're the ones responsible for powering the city. And while they claim that it's vision powered, uh, it's actually a dark project that my players were working to uncover. Oh, okay. Um, what's the city like aesthetically? You mentioned it was like circular and that there were different like rings as you got closer and it was like the outer bottom ring is like the, the worst one and the upper top one is the best place to live. Yeah, so I used to have a map of the city. It's somewhere in the myriad of folders on my computer uh, and it was never very pretty. It was like MS Paint. Uh, but basically, mm -hmm. kind of closer to the water, so it still can, you know, a, a stone's throw from the water is the promenade, which is like the main district. It's kind of raised above the rest of the city, and for the most part, it's big, clean buildings, and, you know, it's a mix of brutalism, but it's not quite as ugly. Like, you look at cities like New York City nowadays, and it's all just flat, concrete buildings. It's that with a little yeah. more oomph, a little more you know, gold flourish, a little more uh, lightning waves kind of arcing up some of the pillars and stuff like that. Uh, it's very clean. People there are very rich and, um, you know, well-governed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that leads directly into the industrial district, which kind of separates. Uh, again, the above-ground portion of that is very pretty. It's almost like a more of a garden than it is an industrial district because they keep all the growth shit underground. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's almost like just having a big park surrounding them. Uh, and after that is the high city, which is like, you know, a normal cyberpunk city. Uh, it's a little bit grimier. There's a little bit more crime, but there's still lots of big billboards and there's lots of services for people. Uh, High-end shopping and entertainment. Uh, and then surrounding okay. that's the mid city, 
which is like the boroughs, a little bit, you know, worse neighborhoods. Uh, the mid-city is mostly underground. Uh, most people live like underneath other people's houses or in the in the sewers and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and then there's the low city, which is like the outer reaches of the mid-city. And it's mostly cut off. It's kind of like the very outside of the city. Uh, and then there's the proper reaches, which are like the people who don't even want to live in the city, but have to be close enough to it to survive. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. they're kind of like the raiders from the cyberpunk world or the nomads. Uh, they're very low tech. They rely on trade with each other. Uh, you know, they found out how to survive collecting mushrooms from the pollution exhaust pipes and stuff like that. Gotcha. Yeah, gotta gotta get those mushrooms. <laughs> they mostly live outside the city. Um, so what would you say is like a, a good like touchstone to understand like the city's aesthetic? You said New York, so is it kind of like Madison Square and then down to, you know, Golden uh, Central Park um, and then, uh, I don't know, like the industrial part of the Bronx? Yeah, almost like the high city. Uh, I would imagine the high city almost looks like Boston. Like it would still have okay. greenery and stuff around. Uh, maybe probably not real, but... <laughs> They would go through some, through some effort to even make like the outer reaches of the rich part of civilization to look nice enough. Uh, but I didn't. There's one place I forgot to mention. Uh, directly below the promenade is just a massive piece of bedrock that it sits on. Okay. Uh, and it was, you know, uh, it's they can theoretically dig into it, but it would take so much effort, uh, energy. It's just not worth it. Which is why they just build the promenade taller. Okay. But uh, all right, ah, I see that. That's like why it's vertical. Yeah, but people were able to dig underneath that pretty easily because you know just the sediment stone that was near that wasn't as strong, and that's where some of the city's services were. And then that's where a criminal underground began to flourish, and that's called Avernus. And it kind of grew to be the opposite of the promenade. Uh, so it's not even directly accessible. You have to make it to at least the mid-city to begin heading underground towards Avernus. But then you head oh, okay. right back, directly underneath Promenade. Like a a good distance underground is just this sprawling downward spiral, spiral of like a criminal underground. Everything from black markets to brothels to like fighting clubs. Cool. And it's extremely difficult to govern because there's not a great way to get there from the mid-city. It's only got a couple routes in and out. It's full of people who don't want to be governed. Uh-huh, right. And they can't get to the to the rich people easily. So the rich people don't feel quite the need to stifle their underground party because they can't make it into the promenade or even the high city. <laughs> Sounds almost like how you kind of conceptualized vampires living in the dark and ruling over like a evil blood society. <laughs> I mean, there'd probably be something like that down there. I mean, even cyberpunk had the vampire. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of like the main crux of the city was the the balance between the promenade trying to maintain control and spread their influence. And that would come into contact with the influence of Avernus from the, from like in the mid city, which is where all the, cool stuff was happening there were all these clashes between yeah. you know gangs and corpos and cults and special interest groups um 
So there's no like suburbs of the city, right? It's all just like one kind of continuous uh, thing, I guess. You could say like mid city and the low city are kind of suburbs, but yeah, the, they're still mid city and the low city are not more like unique. Yeah, they're they're less suburbs and kind of yeah, they're more uh, nebulous. There's, there's not quite solid divides in the city. Uh, in right. the in the high city, there is. There's twelve different districts for the twelve different. Uh, mega corporations that are underneath data field which are like the 12 classes okay. that the characters would follow gotcha. uh, and also to reinforce that which is pretty cool uh the way the game handles leveling up is it makes some of your stuff stronger but mostly uh in soulbound you just get access to new gear okay so that's how we ruled that because it was perfect normally in the game you would just do better and your guild would be like hey you're doing really good here's a grappling hook <laughs> Okay, and now it's like you get you get a promotion within your Megacorp employee position. Yeah, so like if you weren't an employee of the Megacorp, they would be like, hey, you're doing really good. Here's a grappling hook. And if you weren't, they would just be like, there's a shipment of grappling hooks. Okay, so you're, you're leveling up your more your equipment than your actual skills for your character? Yeah, like your character would get a bit stronger. They'd get a bit more health and some of their like powers would get better. But the big thing was you would have access to like a new powerful thing. <clears throat> and they were pretty strong. Grappling hook is a low level of it, but... You know, eventually you grapple things and it does damage, and then you grapple things and you have claws you can hang on to them with. Okay. It's sounding almost like superheroes with the way you unlock more powers and abilities than numbers. Uh, that's kind of how my players were kind of taking it. They kind of took it upon themselves to try to clean the streets up a bit. Oh, cool. Uh, but the big draw is that uh, Soulbound is really good for big monster fights. So they have okay. the Reavers. Well, they have the Akuma, which are kind of like, uh, in the Soulbound world, they're devils. And even just killing them, you have a chance to become corrupted by them. And it like it gives Ooh. you a bunch of cool new powers, but if you get too corrupted, you'll just die. Okay. Um, so that was a thing that the players ran into. Uh, they only interacted with one that didn't get a chance to fight it yet. Uh, but there's also Deceivers, which are like... Uh, giant monsters, pretty much. Okay. So in the Soulbound world, uh, it actually has some cool uh, drawings that show their anatomy. So what made me fall in love with the system is that um, when you're fighting some of these creatures, like the the right way to fight them is to like find a specific organ and then strike at it. Oh. Okay. Yeah, that's that's very cinematic with how that would work. Is that like you have to keep testing different points to find the weak point, or like make a perception check, I guess. Yeah, or yeah, it was pretty much like if you were smart enough, you could find the weak point and exploit it, or if you were strong enough, you could just punch through the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Just living beings, you just kill them by shooting them a whole lot. But it was cool how they all had like uh weaknesses, and on top of that, they're like uh consistent beings. So like some of the in my world, some of them were unique, but it gives you the precedent to run into like multiple of the same specific enemy. So once you learn, like, oh, this creature has a really vulnerable organ under its neck, when you see it again, you know that you can go for that. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, of course, um, my players were fighting, like, uh, cyberpunk creatures, like uh, self-animating computers and uh, replicating drone bots. Yeah, I was thinking that's kind of like how The Witcher works. I'm not sure if the... I know the video game kind of works that way. I'm not sure that the um, 
an RPG built based on it would, but but you just have to find the weakness for a monster and then you kill it using that weakness. I think Witcher does have a tabletop role playing game. It must. I just I'm not familiar with how it works. It does. Cool. I'll have to check that out at some point. Yeah. Um. But getting back to the setting, I was curious about like uh, transport. Like, how do people get around? Like, they have bikes. Uh, are there like flying cars? Uh, where what level of technology are we at for just like common use of stuff like that? Uh, so most people in the high city would have access to either. Uh, I would imagine rideshare would be a little bit more common for people for like, you know, like mid to mid to like mid high class of people would have access to like uh-huh. ride share. Maybe if you have a little bit more money, you would have a personal car, but you would need somewhere to store okay. it. So, you know, you'd have to have like the money to own a garage. Oh yeah. Uh, rich people would, you know, they have whatever the fuck they want. Yes, of course. They drive around their city in nice cars with chauffeurs. Uh, there is like hover technology. Uh, so things can, you know, fly without rotors, but they still kind of need the space. Uh, they're very similar to the hovercraft in Cyberpunk, except I don't know if those uh, hovercraft use propellers at all. The ones in this city would not use any propellers. They would be propelled. Well, by... I was thinking maybe it could be like the ones in Minority Report, where like they still have roads that they kind of attach to, but they can almost drive vertically to allow for much more like, oh, you know, usability of space. Yeah, I don't think the city would have that if only because uh, they're kind of just expanding whenever they need it. Like, the city's uh-huh. not okay. quite as overpopulated as cyberpunk cities tend to be. It's not quite a hive city. There's a lot of people okay. here, but it probably still has a, you know, a uh, a similar population to, like, New York City. Which is okay. A lot of people, but still, like, manageable road conditions. And I would imagine there's, uh, or not even, there is good public transportation in the high and, and promenade. Like people, if they so please, uh, would have access to like taxis and uh, subways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but okay. Once you get to like the mid city, you would kind of be regulated to taxis or like renting a car or a bike. Okay, so so the city's kind of built outward, so like the outer edges don't have established public transportation. No, the low city barely like. has roads. Like, uh, you could probably get around on a motorcycle, but when you get to the low city, the buildings become so packed together oh, okay. that it's kind of like unfeasible. Okay, you're just like kind of negotiating between alleyways. Yeah, so you can. You know, there's probably a, a good couple straightaways where you could comfortably drive a bike up and down, but. For the most part, you'd be like contending with people and buildings. Yeah, someone gives you directions. You got to turn left here, turn right there, then climb up this ladder, climb down that ladder over there, because it's just faster than going around. Pretty much. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Well, my players, they they really like the aesthetic of just like running across the rooftop. Yes, yes, that that does sound fun. Uh, so I'm trying to build like this whole aesthetic for the city for everyone that's listening. So uh, I also was curious about how animals fit into the city like do people have pets is there a lot of wildlife that survived the the apocalypse how does that fit in uh so uh animals that thrive in industrial settings did pretty well so like there's a lot of 
pigeons and probably a good couple of crows, uh, lots of rats. Yep. Uh, but creatures that required more space, like livestock and wildlife, for the most part, they died out unless they were she-based. Uh, you can still see pelicans okay. and seagulls around. There's still some fish, but they're becoming increasingly uncommon, and they're pretty dangerous to eat because uh, all, all they just irradiate. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but people still do kind of have pets. They're very rare. It's like not super common for people to have a dog. Uh, but in the high city, maybe like one in every 10 people makes enough money to be able to afford like a dog or a cat. I would imagine going beyond that, there's not many exotic animals. People might still have like, uh, snakes or reptiles just because they're pretty easy to breed in captivity. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but those would be much more of a luxury. Okay, so because pets are expensive because of food, or just because they're they're so rare? Uh, it's a mix of them being rare and uh, needing to buy you know food and stuff for them that would just be less common. It just stopped being a priority, and then you know all the food, all the dog food makers were destroyed. Is it, you know, well, yeah, they... but they can still eat, like, you know... Yeah, they can eat people food. Whatever. But, like, all the all the infrastructure for that was gone. Like, no one's making dog toys anymore. No one's making dog treats or, you know, pee-pee pads or whatever. It doesn't seem right, like a big right. deal, but that stuff starts to dry up. And if there's no one who's, like, specifically like, well, someone's going to start making more of this. Uh, and it just kind of got to a point where the cities became more cramped and it was getting more expensive to live, so most people just stopped having animals. Uh, and it kind of fed into, like, an exotic market where, you know, prices started going up because now they were becoming more of, like, a, a, a show of wealth. Okay. All right, so a cat, instead of being a companion animal, is now, like, a status symbol. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's people who still love their animals a ton. But, yeah, rich people would get, like, two or three cats and then have somebody else train them to be, like, well-behaved and perfect and then just let them roam. Okay. Um, another thing I was curious about the city aesthetics was the like how commerce worked. Are there like, and it's probably varies between the districts. Are there like you know malls, or is it like you know you you walk down Main Street and have shops, or is it like hole in the wall restaurants where it's you know you have to like squeeze to get to your table? Are there street vendors? Like what's the prevalence for the different areas uh so the promenade is all fine dining you know like clothing restrictions even for the rich uh you know pinky in the air yeah pinky in the air uh proper decorum you have to know how to eat correctly in some places you have to know where to put your fork and stuff Mm -hmm. uh very much it's almost more about uh public image in the promenade than anything else gotcha uh high city is uh, it's it's kind of like what you would imagine Boston like today. There's lots of nice restaurants that you could go eat at that are pretty fancy and a little bit more expensive. But there's also a decent amount of burger joints that just have like, not real meat probably. It's probably like synthetic grown meat. But, you know, the food is not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you go to the mid and low city, you would see much more of those like uh, five city stalls. Uh, specifically, the mid-city would be like lots of small noodle shops and little corner stores and bodegas. And then once you hit the low city, uh, it would only be like uh, haberdasheries, pretty much. It would be like okay. 
people opening their home for tea or for breakfast. Uh, you would like come in and sit in somebody's dining room and they would make you food. Okay, that's kind of cute. I do remember that in a lot of like ancient Greek stories, the way hospitality worked is you just found a house and like went into it. And yeah, there's this like implication that like, you know, if you feed me, I won't hurt you. Um, but there's also like a responsibility on the people that you're going into their house to feed you as well as a, as a guest. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's like it's a, this complicated rule. It's like respect on both sides. Like when right. you go to their house, you have to give them like full deference. If they ask you to eat something or try something or go somewhere, you kind of just do whatever they want you to, but they're also kind of responsible for keeping you fed and giving you whatever you need to keep moving. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much like that. Cause uh, out in the low city, People don't have as much tech. The data field gets weaker the farther from the city center you get. Oh, I didn't think of that. Yeah, that's cool. Just because the relays are mostly around uh, the border between the mid and high city. Uh, but people are just very nice down there. You know, like, it's a hard life, so when things are tough, it's easier when you work together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's kind of like, I, there's not really districts in the low city, but that's where there's communities. So, like, the whole okay. ring that surrounds the city is not fully populated. There's lots of just expanses of just empty street blocks. Maybe something bad happened. Maybe people just moved out. But they kind of huddle in little communities. So you can just head into the low city and move down a street, and all the houses you can see could just be abandoned. Maybe people lived there at one point. Maybe people got sick. Maybe there was, like, a terrorist attack or something, and it just wasn't worth rebuilding. Yeah, or like, I guess because the data field is so prevalent, maybe the data field broke in that area. Yeah, that's possible. It's not as important for the people who live out that far. They tend to use less technology. Uh, yeah, I suppose. But uh, the corporation, the data field technologies, uh, they are responsible for fucking up a lot of stuff in the low city. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Uh, the kind of crux of the story is that uh, data field technologies is doing experimentations trying to mix humanity and technology uh, so that's where these kind of eldritch technological horrors are coming from uh, they're trying to do okay. things like put brains in computers and and try to like copy human psyche onto a hard drive and the results of those experiments are usually like horrific uncontrollable machines that kind of okay, this is definitely a question I was going to ask is, <laughs> yeah, about how you know, I was thinking like, okay, Altered Carbon has this thing where like you can have your consciousness on the little little stacks. So do you have that where people can like, you know, hop between bodies or into robots? It's, it sounds like that's being developed, but not there yet. Yeah, so that's like new technology. So the first adventure my party went on uh, was that they were in contact with uh, kind of like a resistance person who was looking into data field and they were told to go to a specific relay station where there was like a red alert happening and oh, okay. they, they went to this research station the data field was very fucked up one of my players was like uh he had like tech vision he had like cyber eyes mm -hmm. so his vision kept getting messed up and uh they pretty much come to this abandoned like big it looks like a power plant facility and there's guards patrolling the outside, but it looks like everything is off inside. And they okay. sneak in, they start looking around. Um, 
there's tons of dead people who have just been gunned down from every angle. And cool. they find out this is places like a drone production facility. And as they begin to look around and adventure more, they start finding logs of like researchers and stuff. Uh, they learn that the, the facility has been having power fluctuation problems and that it's related to an experiment uh, a specific scientist was putting on. And then they find his logs and they start reading about Amther, which is like his. Or Amther. Am how I spell that? I called it Amther. It's probably not pronounced like that. Okay. Well, it's pronounced however you say it's pronounced. It's your world. <laughs> That's true. But uh, he keeps talking about this thing, AMTHR. And okay. he keeps mentioning how this project has to succeed and how he's getting so close. And the more logs they uncover, the the more kind of unhinged he appears. Uh, the scientist's oh, name was okay. Dr. Becker. And basically, as they kind of reach the underground part of this complex and they begin to work their way through, like, the deep labs that were locked off from the surface, uh, they're forced to turn the power back on to reopen the uh, this big, like, vaulted security door. Okay. <clears throat> so they do that. And all of a sudden, they hear all the machines upstairs whirring and producing drones again. Ooh. And now, once they're in here, they find out that uh, Becker thinks he's finally done it. He has he's set out what he's like uh, come here to do. Uh, he's avenged his mother. And then they stepped into the final room, and they see a giant computer... Uh, strung up with like thousands of wires into the ceiling and just tons of computer screens. And then it comes to life. And my players finally realize that AMTHR is a mother with no vowels in it. Uh, okay. That that was actually a thought I had when I saw you wrote that in the survey. So that's cool. Yeah, and to reinforce that, this uh, the the boss itself didn't even move. It would just sit there and spawn drones. Okay. Uh, from the facility above that would fly in and start trying to hurt the players. So it became this balancing act of, of trying to either collateral, killing off a drone or two around, or trying to focus on the big bad. And once they okay. destroyed enough of her, she started pulling herself free from her hardware, and she started hurling herself across the room at them with her big fucking water. Oh, uh, that's really cool. Uh, but it became this cool fight where, like, she's slamming from side to side of the room. Like, uh, I was doing, like, a wrecking ball where she would just, like, pull herself to one side and smash into the wall. Uh, one of my players ended up climbing on top of her because he had, like, hooking claws. Uh -huh. And he was, like, on top slashing away. Another player was trying to dodge them around the room and sniping all the uh, the drones that were coming in. Some of which would repair her. Ooh, uh, cool. But they did manage to bring her down. But that's kind that of does like, sound like a really cool fight. Yeah, that's kind of like the crux of it. It's it's. I was going for like dark cyberpunk, like almost Eldritch Horror cyberpunk, trying to mix like, you know, almost unknowably horrific machines with human psyche. So it would like scream and it would moan as they attacked it, and it would cry out like, "Why are you attacking your mother?" Oh. Uh. It sounds kind of like GLaDOS also, just like physically. That was a, yeah, that was definitely an inspiration for the design a little bit, except there's something else. I can't think of what it's from, but it's far more accurate. Uh, he wasn't quite as sleek. Mother was kind of like a giant column of computers almost. 
He's pretty much just a giant block of computers and screens and wires and metal. Uh, and she was nowhere near as tactful or subtle as GLaDOS is. No, I mean, GLaDOS is almost like a comedic villain with how she's structured. So. I love her, too. She's so well-written. Yes. But yeah, that's kind of the, the crux, is that that kind of like dark cyberpunk. Okay, that, the another question I had was how do AI and robots fit into the world? Um, so it sounds like robot technology is still something like sentient AI. Obviously, robots are around like us now in reality. Um, yeah, you want to talk more about that? Sure. Yeah, so sentient AI would be like something data field would be working on. Uh, but the way they would try to achieve that is by like um, trying to copy people down. So how we talked about stacks before, that's something that they were kind of working on. That's kind of how Becker put uh, what was left of his dying mother into the computer. Oh, uh, okay. Um, All right, so it actually is his mother, sort of. Yeah, it's like an echo of her. Uh, but basically, as you can imagine, if you try to like copy a human brain onto a computer, it might do something. Like It might save some aspect of what's happening. But there's no way it's going to get everything. Uh, so you, it's kind of like a process of these half-echoes being put into machines that's giving them like uh, a kind of sickening sentience. Like They have the sentience of free will coming from just this weird, corrupted code that is made by like copying somebody's brain onto a computer. But Wasn't that the story for GLaDOS as well? Wasn't she like a copy of uh, Cave Johnson's wife? Uh, it was a secretary, but yeah. Carolyn. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that was pretty much hers, except hers seemingly went much better, even though she went psychopathic. To be fair, yeah. though, she did say that she didn't want to be put into the computer. Yes, that's, and they forced that's her right. to, so her killing them after doesn't seem quite so out of the ordinary. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's okay to give spoilers to that game since it's been out for, what, like, 15 years now? It's been, yeah, it's been a while since Portal 2 came out, so... Alright, so there aren't really fully functional AI that are existing within society in C-City There's, yet. like, chatbot AI. We have, like, like uh information level ai is not super uncommon like in the high city you could find kind of like how malls have those touch display systems you could find those that you could like talk to and be like where can i get food it'll be like there's six food places within two blocks of you yeah yeah but, but uh, yeah that's not quite what i mean yeah as for AI. like living sentient machines pretty much nah there's nothing of that level yet uh, nothing controllable. There's definitely creatures that have been made by data fields that they definitely don't control in any respect. Uh, some of them have broken free and kind of just live free in the city, or rather underneath it. But there are very much horrors. Like, they don't really need sustenance to live. So they kind okay. of just prowl the, the pipes murdering people they find. Ah, great. There's... Robot alligators in the sewers. Yeah, the way I was kind of thinking is like immediate cyber psychosis, like just a twinkle okay. of humanity left in the the functioning like brain capacity of the AI, and the rest of it is just like full cyber psychosis. Okay, uh, so that was like a touchstone for people. That was like a plot point in Invincible, wasn't it? Did you see that? Um, the animated show. I saw the first season. I think they made a second. Yeah, well, they're making the second now. I'm not sure it's out yet. Yeah, I meant the first season. Oh, was that with... 
where they like go to visit a college and there's like a Frankenstein robot yeah, jock monster. I can't remember that guy's name. Yeah, the guy who who keeps making like resurrected, uh, like cyborg people. They're almost like zombies, but they're yeah. And then they go crazy. I forget what he calls them. Yeah, those things are sick, and they literally beat the crap out of Mark. Yes, and then they try using them against uh, his dad, but it doesn't work. Yeah, that was... It, it's a little bit similar to that. Uh, they might have a, a hint more humanity than those creatures do, because those were kind of just like zombie berserkers. Yeah. Uh, there is like a little bit left of whatever those people used to be, but it's like it's like baseline skim-level thoughts. Okay. Like... Uh, Becker's mother was pretty much reduced. Her personality was pretty much reduced down to mother. Unsatisfied right. mother. Oh, unsatisfied mother. Yeah. It, I mean, I never showed it in the auto logs, but in my head, she was like a one of those super, like, her son is like top of his field, data field technologies, and she's like, you didn't do good enough. Ooh, okay. That's kind of the impression I was getting from, like, when I was coming up with, like, his desperation to save her. Yeah, and that kind of matches with, um, I'm always trying to come up with, like, cultural touch points. Um, the Psycho. Because the, in that, Norman Bates, like, his mother dies and he tries to recreate her, but obviously he doesn't have robot technology. So he just, like, pretends that he is her and starts talking to himself using her voice. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very... I feel like if Becker wasn't immediately murdered by the machine, he probably would have killed his co-workers. But he was very much, like, falling apart towards the end. It was fun writing the logs, though. It's one of my favorite things to do in uh, tabletop games is, like, uh, writing in-universe content. Like, notes to people. Mm -hmm. Like, not to the players, specifically just, like... I like when players come back to like a house and they find that like somebody left a note for another NPC they know. Yes, yes, I like that stuff. Like too. I just go for eggs or something, and I'll be back. Kisses or something. Aww. It's a cool way to kind of toss in a little bit more something to the story. Yeah. All right, so I had three other things I wanted to talk about just the setting before we go into other stuff. Um, which was religion. Um, you mentioned gene splicing in your survey and cybernetics and uh, the data field. So which one of those do you want to talk about first? Uh, we touched a lot on the data field. It's a very nebulous thing. Uh, okay. It pretty much just like allows the city to use like a pseudo magic. And it does sometimes interact negatively with the players because they're cursors. So when they're in like an area where the data field is weaker or kind of corrupted by the creatures that are there, uh, sometimes it would do things like weaken their dark vision, or uh, it would cause oh, okay. them to like hear a static for a bit, depending on the player and like what they were, what kind of enhancements they had. Well, I had more specific questions there. One of them was like, uh, how is it used by everyday people? Like, is it? For most people, is it just Wi-Fi, but like more integrated? Yeah, it's pretty much like um, it's pretty much like having uh, fiber optic Wi-Fi. Like imagine Wi-Fi, but at fiber optic speeds. Like everything is almost physically connected, so data transfers so much faster. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and in a lot of for normal people, it's just faster technology. Like it's just more complicated technology. Things don't have to have quite as much room to be able to receive information. 
uh, so their phones work faster and it's, it's easier to get directions and instructions for things. Uh, companies would use it to store stuff more effectively with like data field servers. Is it like everything's a smart home? Is it like that level of integration or is it still like it depends on where you live in the promenade yeah it's like full smart home like you could walk into your house and you could use the data field for everything from turning your lights on without even speaking or moving just like having a nodule that you can switch mentally uh -huh. uh, all the way down to the low city where they would have literally nothing and then kind of like of high and mid city high city would be a little bit more like upper middle class you know some smart appliances, smart TV, uh, maybe like a smart coffee maker. And then mid-city, people might have like one or two smart things. Like maybe they have a smart lock on their house or something just for extra security. But generally, everything connects to the data field in some way. Okay. Uh, it's very much a world where like everything is on the internet. Yeah. So with it being so important, how is it protected like what prevents people from like hacking into my coffee maker uh so the data field most of the the defense for like specific implements is within them they'll have they'll have their own like internal electronics where they have their own cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. uh the data field itself is really open which is part of what makes it so dangerous because <laughs> you can just try to hack anything most things will have pretty decent security if they're important but it's really not crazy hard to just hack into somebody's coffee maker and, you know, make them produce coffee when people don't want it. Yeah, yeah. I would, yeah, obviously a coffee maker would have really weak security, because why would someone do that? But... Uh, the big thing with uh, the, the data field, though, is the more you interact with it, the more it interacts with you. So if you hack with it a lot, uh, it'll start to, like, negatively infect you. Uh, and that's one of the ways the players can gain, which is in soulbound corruption. Oh, okay. Yeah, what's that? Uh, it's a stacking effect. You'd normally get it from killing the Akuma, those things I mentioned before. Uh, but in this case, players would get it from trying to hack things where the data field was weak, or if they were trying to hack into something too dangerous, or if they were hacking too often. Uh, and it is a stacking buff and debuff. So it has an upside, usually like... Uh, a small bonus to something. Maybe you move faster, maybe you hit better. Uh, but it also has a physical uh, response. In Soulbound, you grow horns. Uh, and you grow more horns <laughs> based on how much corruption you have. Okay, uh, so you start turning into a demon. Yeah, literally you start turning into a demon. And that's what happens when, I think, Corruption 3, your character just becomes an Akuma. Which is why I said they die, because you just don't get to play as them anymore. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, but in this setting, it was it took other <clears throat> forms. Uh, we played around with it more, because in Soulbound, it's a bit limited. Like, once you get corruption, you pretty much have it forever. Uh, in this okay. world, we had, like, fading corruption that would, like, pass. Because I didn't want to just, like, permanently punish my players for doing something like hacking. Uh -huh. But it would do things like make their eye implants change colors, or uh, it would force their cyber limbs to act in a specific way, like curl up or like flex. Uh, it was minor stuff like that for them, but when corruption got worse on one of my characters, they did start forming uh, what is it called? Ferro? Ferrofluid? You know that, like, magnetic fluid? 
they started uh-huh. forming uh, horns made of that. Ooh, cool. And it was kind of like metal shavings were being magnetized into the shape of horns on their head. And the major downsides with those were uh, they make you more susceptible to more corruption. Uh, oh, okay. And they also are very apparent to people who who see them, and they're like big red flags. Uh, so yeah, like, this guy messes with the data field. Watch out, he's a hacker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, if you're in the mid or high city and people see your arm, like, twitching like that, it's not too hard for people to eventually be like, he's definitely a hacker, I'm just going to report him. Uh, but mm-hmm. in the low city, no one gives a fuck. Yeah. And some people in the mid city don't really care. <laughs> Sounds almost like how tattoos are with discrimination based off of them. Oh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like the higher higher class people are, well, it makes sense if you think about it. They have more to lose. They're, they have more at risk of people hacking them. People in the low city don't give a fuck. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't even have a data field coffee maker. What do I have to worry about? Uh, all right. So we talked about like corruption for people. Um, you also mentioned that the the data field itself can get corrupted. Is there a? How does that work? Uh, so the the data field will become corrupted when either uh, a relay station is damaged. Uh, so in this was the case in like I think the third adventure they went on. But they ended up near another relay station that was the uh, result of a terrorist attack or an attempted one. Uh, pretty much a truck bombing. They drove in, tried to shut down the data field by blowing the truck up, but they just damaged it. Uh, and the effect that that had was like widespread headaches on people who had stronger data field connections, lots of malfunctioning machines in the city, uh, lots of computers that just weren't returning data to people who requested it, like directions weren't being sent back, people weren't getting notifications, they couldn't connect. Uh-huh. Uh, but it can also happen when a corrupted creature is near the uh, other people in the data field. So uh-huh. One of the ways my players, uh, there was a point where they were moving through the sewers, and the way that they were avoiding uh, the creature that was down there, uh, just murdering anyone to find uh, was whenever it would become, whenever it would start getting close to them, the, the data field would start getting staticky. And they would be able to feel like that weakening grasp. Uh, because these creatures had such a strong influence on the field around them that they would kind of manipulate and disturb it. That's so funny. that That's kind of like how ghost stories work, where like you get goosebumps when the ghost is close to you exactly well that's kind of what i liked about it because first of all they could hear the thing like down the hallway and stuff but there's only so much directional you can get in the sewer sound travels really far Mm -hmm. but it was cool because it would also force them when they wanted to fight it they knew that they were going to be fighting at a a decent disadvantage because each one of them would have something different that would flare up during uh like high corruption fights Uh so like our, our super cybernetic player had his eyes that would usually start to to fade and fail him. So he would have far more trouble seeing in the dark. Uh, Our sniper would lose a lot of his hearing. So he would have trouble communicating with the rest of the party. Mm, That's cool. How'd you, like, represent that for the player? Did you just tell them, like, you can't hear the other players? Or did you have, like... Uh, Something else that you did for them? Depended on the circumstances. For, like, the eye problems that player was having, uh, when he was doing, like, perception and searching checks, uh, he just took, like, minus penalties to those. Mm -hmm. Uh, For the the sniper, he wasn't able to 
uh, we would like to flip a coin to see whether or not he could understand what people were telling him. So that made that was he wanted more of a, a role play thing that he could mess with. Okay. So he would like routinely like talk to people in combat and be like, "Where should I go? Where, where do you want me to hit them?" Uh, so he would have like a fifty-fifty chance of just not hearing whatever. <laughs> oh, because like where you hit is important because of that like weak spot that you talked about. Yeah, exactly. That and like further planning, like people would move in to do something, and you know, if you shoot the creature right now, it's gonna change its target. <laughs> but just like trying to plan out battle tactics was more interesting that way. And the other character yeah. had a, a cybernetic arm that would flare up, and I made it so they would roll when they attacked, and if it was under a five, uh, they would lose their weapon. Uh, but Oof. theirs wasn't as bad because their weapon was a returning one. But it oh, meant okay. that they would have to back off and call it back for a turn. I see. But that was that was the same person who had the magnetic thing happen. They had a lot of magnetic flavor. Okay, cool, cool. Like you know what? Uh, what's her name? Junker Queen. <laughs> I don't know if you played Over uh, Overwatch Two, but uh, she had the whole Junker Queen knife thing going on way before that. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I have not played Overwatch 2. I, I did one, but I never made the switch. Basically, my player had like a kookery that they could throw out and then call back with like a magnetic pole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it like slices people on the way back to Yeah, and if the person was like small enough, it could get stuck and like pull them forwards. Oh, okay. That's kind of neat. Uh, but in this, uh, in this instance, she would mostly use it to just not lose her weapon quite as poorly. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's... Multi uses. Yeah, it worked out perfectly because he did have a, a cybernetic arm, so we just rolled that it had like super powerful magnets in it that were like linked to the uh, the ones in the weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so cybernetics and gene splicing. How how far does that go in the city? Are they like people walking around as dogs? I'm assuming not, but are they like walking around with dog ears? Um, there's not. A, the gene splicing is uh, more limited in. Uh, gene splicing is more used by like the tech, the corporations to create horrific abominations than it is okay. by the general public. There's gene splicing for the super rich for like fixing ailments, so they can like okay. go in and you know if they want their baby to look a certain way or if they want to try to remove a genetic condition with like CRISPR technology, that's something they would have access yep. to. Uh, gotcha. I don't know how possible it is to like change your eye color and stuff like that with CRISPR. I mean, we can just say it's possible. For, That's kind of what I want in my world. I like to try to keep some science in it, but I wasn't sure the limits of CRISPR. <laughs> uh, you probably could, because like the way I understand it, eyes like you have this like set like it takes um, pigment, and there's this process where it gets darker and darker, and the way you have a certain eye color is you break the gene that has it go to the next uh, step. So we just use CRISPR to break whatever that gene is on both chromosomes. Yeah. So in my world, that was kind of like the limits of it. It was like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like blue, green, hazel, brown is the usual color transition. Um, I guess uh, there's that really like pink color that uh, albino uh, people can have. Oh, that's true. Uh, so there's a color before blue. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of like... That's the, like a lack of pigment. Yeah, that's like the limits of the gene splicing technology is kind of like light CRISPR. Okay, all right. So it's more like what we think of for, for gene splicing in our own world. Yeah, there is a bit more uh, 
that we wouldn't think of in the like the elder tar aspects but that's more of like the putting brains in computers and splicing ai and human thought uh none of which is having any positive results yeah um what about how prevalent is cybernetics like so you've talked about like all the the cool aspects but is it very common like are people walking around with like a you know, a chef gets a hand replacement so they can cut vegetables faster or something like that. So it is primarily uh, profession-based. So uh, basically the, the city normally has, like, they're hard to enforce, but they have, like, cybernetic limitations on what people are allowed to have. So anyone can get, like, a phone put in their head or, like, something that can help them flip lights on and off in their house. Uh-huh. But if you happen to work in, like, a dockyard, you can like submit a request and get like an exo skeleton like an or an interior exoskeleton to like make you lift get stronger. Uh but that's kind of devolved to like, yeah, a chef if they're really high class might have like a mechanical hand or a mechanical arm to make preparing food easier. The general public might have stuff like some people might have arm implants just for like general secretarial work. Because it's uh-huh. kind of just like having a big phone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but like blue-collar professions is where it really shines the most. Uh, so those guilds I was talking about before, like the the companies, uh-huh. uh, they were produced. Uh, I'll go through some of them because it works well. Uh, for example, there's Chopco Industrial Supply and Demolitions. They okay. would provide uh, cybernetics to people who work in everything from construction to uh, scrapping and salvaging. So they would be giving people things like uh, exo arms and stuff like that that are made for, you know, handling dangerous materials or breaking things. Okay. Uh, there is Nanotread, uh, secured courier service, which would be providing like movement-based stuff. They would give people grappling hooks. They would give people uh, like foot implants for like, you know, like Heelys, but in the future. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, there's SciLife, BioAugments, and MedTech Corporation, which is like all kinds of, you know, uh, liver enhancements and stuff like that. Uh, and then there's a bunch that are mostly military-based that would be for, like, security or, uh, you know, so people just like having cool cyberize. Yeah, yeah. Um, are the enhancements something that are easily swapped out usually, or is it more often just a permanent modification? Uh, it depends on the make and model, but most of them are are pretty permanent. A lot of them replace something that's already there. So like, Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to get a new arm. It's not as hard to swap out like two cyber arms. Yeah, that's more what I meant. Like you have an arm for, you know, going to work and lifting heavy stuff. And then you have your arm at home for like fine motor things like eating dinner and reading a book uh, i would imagine that some people have that uh but there's probably a fair number of people who wouldn't who would just kind of adapt to having an arm that just wouldn't be good at delicate tasks mm-hmm. uh, but i would also imagine that they would recommend that that goes on your your non-dominant arm yeah yeah i suppose because it would also give you you know far better structure and control of that lens <laughs> doesn't really matter if you're right or left-handed if the other arm's going to be fully cybernetic. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But yeah, the rich people would have modular limbs, or the people who would 
uh, value that could invest in like a second cyber arm that would be more casual. Okay, so that sounds like that's limited kind of by funding. Yeah, it's limited by funding, and a lot of people just like they don't have the need for it. A lot of the cybernetics aren't too obtrusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the military ones are, and some of the the chop shop ones are, but for the most part, it's like internal stuff or uh, like body ex like uh, outer body stuff. Okay. Um. So you had like a interesting religion that you mentioned in your your survey for C City. Um. Are, and you said there were other religions, but there weren't that many. Is C-City like on Earth, or is this like a different uh, reality with different continents and history? Uh, it is on Earth. It's like a post-apocalyptic Earth. So some of the existing religions still kind of uh, are still kind of there. Some people still have some Christian values. Some people still have some Judaism stuff going on, Some a little mm-hmm. bit of Buddhism. Uh, but for the most part, like organized religion would be very weak in this moment in time. There might be like yeah. a church or two in the city, maybe like a mosque or a synagogue. But that would probably be it, and all the relig- the super religious people would just live near it. Uh, but for the most part, people would worship like technology, <laughs> kind of in a nebulous stance. Uh-huh. They would just think like, you know, the kind of like how technology is now it's almost irreverent uh but there would also be a small collection of people who fully understand technology as like a new god and who see okay. the data field as like kind of a prophet and those are some of the people so there's almost two factions who are creating elder tars just of different kinds data field is making all these giant horrific monster beings because they have all these resources and then there's small little cults that I mentioned before who are making more cyber psychos of people uh, just by like fully opening their brain to the data field, removing any limiters that there would be, uh, just like subjecting people to these bizarre experiments just because they believe like getting closer to this technology is getting you closer to God or something. Yeah, okay. Uh, but they're not like a proper organized religion. Those are like sects of... Uh, cult. Yeah, yeah, that's more like a cult with how you're describing yes, it. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, generally religion has kind of fallen by the wayside at this time. Okay. And you mentioned the, is this Nosnet? Nusnet? How do you pronounce this word? Uh, which one? In your survey, you mentioned that there was a, like, AI that hadn't gotten free into the data field. Um and was like people were worshiping that yeah that's kind of one of the uh it's those are one of the akuma so like that that's one of those devil things oh, okay. and they do have a hand in guiding those cults uh but they're very much just for the just like the assimilation of humanity uh it's not like they want humanity to be destroyed but the way i was understanding it is they're kind of they're manifestations of technology uh, kind of just like I, the way I imagined it was now that people are starting to like emotionally link to the uh, the data field, which is what cursors are. There are people who are like developing like a biological ability to connect to this. Uh, now that that's happening more and more, they're it's kind of like the warp in 40k. Like it's skimming 
their emotions and feelings, oh, yeah. and it's using that to create these creatures. Okay. And those creatures are seeking to, you know, create more of their kind. So they're trying to push people to integrate more with technology. Okay. So I think there was a specific one that I put in there. I don't know what name I put on the first one. Well, that's fine. No, if, if it was important, you would remember. Yeah, I was going to say, there's, there's been a couple. Okay. Um, so that was a pretty exhaustive look at the world. Did you want to talk about uh, your campaign a little bit? Um, I mean, that's, it's, it's been kind of playing out like a cyberpunk campaign. It's been a, a big mix of like, uh, resistance meetings and like doing small things around for the people. Uh, it's pretty much just been going like they'll meet a new community or group of people and then start interacting with them and then move on. They kind okay. of started with the resistance because they were all kind of doing their own thing and they got hired by uh, a contractor uh, who wanted them to steal some information for him. And that kind of devolved into them meeting the, resi uh, the resistance who are these people who just don't like the data field and they're seeing it as like a corruptive force. So they're trying to curb its use and they're trying to understand it better so they can take it down. Okay. Uh, then they started meeting the gangs who are trying to like further the agenda of Avernus. Uh, there's a whole bunch who all want different things, but basically just expanding the kind of underground. And they have done a bit gotcha. of work for the Corbos. Uh, but, you know, they really like the corporations, understandably. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right, so it sounds like it's more of an episodic campaign without as much of a, a central focus yeah, it, yet, anyway. Yeah, they'll pretty much... It's kind of almost been Monster of the Week, which is what I try to avoid, but it's kind of just been working out better that way. So they'll pretty much, like, meet a group of people, find out what problem they have, go to try to solve it and see how it's related to what's, like, the greater story. Uh, yeah. And then when they resolve that, there's usually, like, a lead to the next thing. Uh, I'll try to give them options, too, like more than one thing going on at once so they can kind of pick which way they want to go. Mm -hmm. But it's very much been playing out as that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to initially like explore a world and then you can develop a larger story after you've gotten those initial steps of, okay, yeah, this is what this world is like. These are the different groups and people within it. Yeah, they're still kind of like... Move from there. I want to do a bit more maybe like another month or two of them kind of exploring the city and getting to meet a couple more of the people. I want them to interact with some of the, the megacorps that aren't data fields a bit more. Because uh -huh. uh, not all of them are bad. Some of them are just companies just doing what companies do. Right. Um, and then I do want them to spend some time in the reaches because they haven't had, they haven't really gone to the low city much. They haven't mm -hmm. been, they haven't been out to the reaches at all. Yeah. Uh, well, why why would you want to? It's, I mean, it's cool out there. There's cowboys. I thought it would be way more interesting <laughs> if it's like a uh, super high cowboy culture. So like, okay. yeah, it's a mix of like a Mad Max and like as close to cowboys can get while people are still running like dirt bikes and motorcycles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had a lot of cool stuff planned. Like, there's a techno barbarian out there who they're gonna fight. Just somebody from the mid city who. Made it up to the high city, you know, had some luck, made some money. Uh, and then they realized, like, shit, if I just invest every cent of money I have into just making myself physically strong, 
and then I just go to where people don't have any tech, I could be their god. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess. So he just invested in uh, specifically non-data field related uh, cybernetics. Oh, uh, okay, are, yeah, because there's no data field out yeah, there. Yeah, far more expensive and far more rustic, so that's like the old shit. That's like the cyberpunk red level of tech. Okay. Yeah, well, you, you got to get rustic when you're going out to the, the Wild West. Yeah, but he's also, like, way tougher than a normal person, just to, to supplant for his weak cybernetics. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that does sound like a pretty cool villain. Yeah, so I want to kind of give the players a chance to kind of hit every community once, and then I want to see what they're feeling. Right now, they're kind of, they kind of dig the mid-city, because that's where most of them lived. Uh, so some of them have contacts. One of them was like part of a child gang there, so they still take care of the other members. Uh, one of them was a detective, so his office was there. So they're really like they're still in mid city, and once they kind of decide on like what side of this conflict they want to take and who they want to like back, uh, I'm going to open up the city a bit more for them to kind of start making their own moves. Okay. Yeah. That that does sound pretty cool. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about or wish I'd asked you about the the world or your campaign? Uh, not really. I will mention that I'm always heavily inspired by music, and I will send you the playlist that I had for this that uh, pseudo-inspired it. Uh, oh, cool. Some of the songs in here I just had known from a long time ago, and uh, they kind of like helped me build the aesthetic in my head. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, um, one of my friends also does his campaigns based around music when he's DMing, so that, that's really neat. I I love to pack music references into my my uh, settings too. Like I'll give players the names of bands, or I'll like uh, base a specific scenario on like something that comes up in a song. Yeah, yeah, that's really neat. Um, well, my usual final question is: Do you have any advice you want to share with any other DMs about something you've learned uh, through creating this world? Uh, not this world specifically, but the best advice I have for anyone who is a DM or who wants to be a DM is to just have to do it. I've met so many people who just say, like, I want a DM, but I just haven't had time to write, like, a good story, or I just don't feel like I know the game well enough yet. And the only way you could possibly get better is just by doing it. Like, it is, it's never hard, it's never as hard as you think. In the end, as long as you just keep the game moving... You don't have to know every rule. It doesn't have to be the most balanced experience, and you'll get better. So that's yep, definitely my cool. advice. You just got to get out there and do it. Yep. yep. Yeah, the first step to creation is starting to create. Exactly. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Kima. It was great having you here. <laughs> Thanks for having me.